Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. So I am really delighted to have Will Young on the Therapy Works podcast. I've been listening to your music for days and I don't know, it really speaks to me of you. And so I kind of feel I have this connection to you through your songs. And everybody listening will know that you're a singer and songwriter, you're an actor, author, podcaster of the Wellbeing Lab. And um, I guess we have a lot of alignment with me as a therapist and you with the Wellbeing Lab. And in some ways, I've understood you as you've been using yourself as your own experiment about how to learn about how we are in the world. And from that perspective, the question I ask always um, my guests is, what is a particular challenge you are facing or you have faced? Well, thank you so much for having me. I would say the sort of the biggest challenge ongoing for me is to maintain a, a regulated nervous system. And, and actually, I feel, I mean, my nervous system today is quite regulated. So in answering that question, I feel quite fortunate that that is probably the biggest challenge I have. Um, because of all the work I've done on myself over the years, I love life, really. And I love my work. My work's so varied. I really get a lot from it. It sort of feeds your soul, the curiosity and learning and growing. Yeah. I've managed to reach a place where I love talking about mental health. That's something that I love talking about. I love exploring it for myself. I love helping others. I love helping animals. I love acting, love writing. But then I've just been doing two hours of gold leafing, you know, <laughs> and that's really fun to do on a Friday. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm covered in gold leaf. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that is a big challenge for me. Uh, it very really tangible. Is. Yes, it is very tangible. Um, when you kind of think about your nervous system, I mean, I know you had this amazing therapist. Was she called Lois? Lois Evans. Look at your face lighting up when you remember her. Have you kind of worked out for yourself the source of your high sensitivity of your nervous system, how difficult it was for you to soothe and feel attached and what led to quite a lot of big difficulties for you, which other people, given your external success, would find it hard to understand. Yes. I, I think w what happened is when, when I began to access very young past trauma, uh, my, my body, my, my sort of defensive system just went into overload i believe in parts therapy you know i think parts therapy is very interesting ifs yeah looking at different roles and different positions that the parts are playing within us 
And um, on a very basic level, my body just went, no, that's just not happening. So my defense system came up. I got very bad dissociation, um, depersonalization. That sounded agony. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. And it still is awful. You know, um, it was very hard to diagnose. Um, but now I have an understanding of it. Um, it's like being a ghost, isn't it? It's like being a ghost in your own body. I didn't recognize my face in the mirror. Didn't really recognize life. You know, actually, I, a lot more people have it than I realized. Um, a lot of people don't even know what it is when they're living with it. But I've worked with very good trauma specialists, somatic therapists, um, EMDR, shamans, to really get a uh, build up my resilience. So that when you can feel the kind of tingling or whatever the signals are in your body that, that you're heading that way, you can either do some breathing exercise or you smell something or do you find something that regulate does music regulate you or does that send you spinning smell smells are really good for me um because they bypass your thinking don't they they're the they're the first thing a, a baby has and the last thing you have before you die is your sense of smell i didn't know that but it certainly works for me um percussive noises are really good so i have a number of different rattles and drums and things like that um, and also work, um, because it brings out what I like to call my functional adult and gets a part of my brain that's been taken offline working again. Um, you know, that, that's the hardest thing. It gives you your sort of agency that you know what you're good at, that you kind of, I can do this, this I can do. Well, that's it. You know, I think the hardest thing about when, if I, if I'm in a sort of traumatic hijack state part of my brain that i need to function isn't necessarily firing um so i need to sort of give it a helping hand uh and then sometimes i reach out you know to my therapist and i say look i'm you know a bit too far gone i can't get back online as i call it um and and, na and nowadays within 10 minutes can pretty much get back in the room I like the expression get back online because if you think of the mind and body as one unit as you've been describing it, your mind in, in some ways is offline and you're in a heightened kind of traumatised state and then that sends you very negative messages that can spiral. So when you can slow your system down and get back to kind of first gear and de-escalate, then you can begin to think more clearly. I mean, it, was there a traumatic incident early in your life that you're aware of, or is it just, bod not just, is it body sensations that you don't have a, an image or a story that you understand? I, I think it's body sensations. Um, you know, there was trauma. I did go to a prep school that I uh, experienced. I have to be careful with my wording here because I'm currently involved in a, in a legal um, situation with the school now. Um, which actually is is quite might sound strange, but it's actually quite wonderful that now I feel myself and other men who were boys then we now have recourse to um, you know ask for uh, and seek responsibility. Um, so I'm finding that terribly empowering, terribly 
validating actually. Um, but I did have a, a, a very yeah. bad experience at, at this prep school for six years, you know, living amongst monsters. Um, so, you know, God, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I've got out of it. I mean, I can still get flashbacks, but when I have those flashbacks, it's quite often with seasonal changes and I can be in my house. I know I'm in my house, but I can also be back at school. It's a very strange experience, but because I've done a lot of work on it with EMDR and trauma therapy, it doesn't tend to affect me. I think maybe sort of past stuff is so early pre-verbal stuff. Um, I don't think I'll ever maybe crack that, but also I'm okay with not cracking it now. It's about, you know, I've built up my resilience from being able to live life with with this thing that I carry. Uh, and it's brought a huge amount of learning, actually, for me. I mean, gosh, I've just learned so much. Um, and, and really, I've learned how much the body can drive the mind, you know, or the nervous system can drive the mind. And we've been kind of over thinking and the Descartes idea of thinking and um, body has split the two, which has really desensitized us and actually disempowered us. And it sounds like you're recognizing that we don't clean up and become a new person from traumatic experiences, but you find ways of self-soothing, of self-regulating and living with them. And actually and I'm sure you've, you know about this, is that people talk about post-traumatic growth, that it never takes away from the um, level of the trauma or, or, or the devastation of it, but that when people find that they can process through it and that they can find meaning in their life and what matters in their life, that the trauma changes them and that can feel like growth. You know, life after experiencing trauma, I feel I have a choice. Uh, it's not my sort of narrative, if you know what I mean. So, I mean, narrative and story is spoken about a lot. You know, my story is not, oh, that I, you know, had a very difficult time in my childhood. I've sort of got to a place now where, I mean, that doesn't really define me. I, I, I had to work through it, you know, because I think it, those kind of labels and definitions can keep us stuck. They can be very limiting. I think so. Yes, I think they can be very li limiting. So when you talk about post-traumatic growth, I definitely can sort of see that um, whilst also honouring my, you know, my past and also, you know, younger parts of me. I mean, I imagine, you know, I'm a twin. I have a twin brother. Um, so I imagine... Your brother, Rupert, who died in August 2020. Is that right? I can't remember now. It was COVID time, so it's so convoluted. I think it is. three. Yes, three years. Three years. That he didn't find a way of dealing with his trauma, that he, he anaesthetized. And, and in the end, the sort of mechanisms he used to block it as the things that killed him. Well, I think that for anyone that has lost someone who has had addictions and my brother took his life, he actually worked, he tried his hardest. He went to a lot of therapy. He went to a lot of treatment centers. So, you know, some people 
don't have the capability or the willingness to to get there and that's okay you know and there are people that can't get there in fact i've been in treatment with a lot of people myself and i've seen people i'm very lucky because i have a sort of fortitude that kept me going through very difficult times um you know but i think it's it's made me realize that when i see people most people are trying you know most people don't want to be in a state of unhappiness. I agree. Yeah, and it's and it might be hard to find empathy when people's behaviors and actions and words might be causing a lot of pain and difficulty. Um but I think the sort of Rupert's parting gift for me, although I still feel Rupert very much around and maybe you relate to this as a twin, but I think actually one of the most amazing yeah. things about being a twin is that Rupert's gone in terms of from this earth, but I feel them, you know, everywhere. Um but one of his yeah, he's in you, and your love for him never dies. I just, I just feel him. I feel him everywhere, and I get so many yeah. signs. Yeah, that's nice. His presence. But, but one of the things, his parting gift, I think, is to give me even more empathy for people who are in in pain. You know, um, but yeah, it almost makes me cry hearing you say that because I think, particularly on podcasts like mine and yours, and a lot of well-being podcasts, the stories we hear are stories of people who suffer and then they do the work and then they get better and they stabilize themselves in a way that you you have. Um, and that is really true and very important that we can recognize that people have the capacity to use many different types of therapies and whatever whatever works for them to kind of find a way of living in a way that is more peaceful and, and calmer. But there are probably millions of people who, for whatever reason, that none of us kind of fully understand. And we really want to be able to understand, but we don't have an answer. But also recognizing there are some people who, for whatever reason that we will never fully know, can't do it. Uh, one of the things that people talk about with suicide is that it's like a heart attack of the brain. So it's like you can have a heart attack in your heart where your um, heart stops beating in the same way as your brain. Your neural networks can just kind of explode. And I think that's useful. Rather than thinking that, oh, you know, one and one makes two, sometimes there aren't answers. And some people can't do it. Well, there's a lot of shame around suicide and a lot of judgment. But I think deep down that probably comes down into people's fear of death. I think us as humans, a lot of us are, are terrified about death. I mean, I personally, I'm not. but The majority. You know, <laughs> I would say the majority is. I saw a shaman and uh, for some reason, once I came out, of this session, I I wasn't scared about death anymore. It was the most peculiar thing. That's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And I have a much wider sense of what's gone before and what will go after. So it really doesn't terrify me. It was very odd. I think a fear of death drives quite a lot of things, actually. So do I. I think a fear of death and our inability to face our mortality drives so many 
kind of maladaptive behaviours. What were the things that you saw before and after with the shaman? Can you say? I sort of got in touch with a past life, which I, again, didn't expect at all. It was very visceral. It was... Felt very real. Very real. And I wasn't really going for that at all. I was going because of my depersonalization, which she also probably halved in one session. Really? Wow. Yeah, she's a great, she's written a book actually, Joe Bowlby. So I sort of accessed this past and then I just sort of accessed some other people's lives. I mean, I'm a little bit witchy, so sometimes I can see things in people and, you know, if I choose to, and I can see colours and sometimes I get premonitions and things. So you're a bit psychic. I'm a little bit psychic. But I think having known that I'd sort of been around before, uh, for some reason that sort of, I don't know, my fear of death went. It was very odd. And I don't even think about it. I don't think about my past life. I don't even think about whether whether it was true or not. It just sort of happened and, yeah, very odd. But it sounds like it's put you at peace in some way because you know where you've come from and in some ways that protects you from the fear of, of an unknown future because you've kind of been there before. So it feels a bit less terrifying. I think so. I don't worry about what will happen when I go. I know a lot of people worry about experiencing pain or what will it be like as they get more frail and things like that, which of course is very valid, you know, or being on their own. As it, it might sound a bit weird, but I sort of quite look forward to it, really. i tell you why, because also I've done so much. I'm so lucky that if I even get a chance to sit on, lie on my deathbed, I, I'm so happy. You know, I, I've managed to realise quite a few of my dreams, and that's extremely fortunate. In fact, I remember when I first won the talent competition Pop Idol and I got a record contract, I remember saying to myself, oh, my gosh, I can go to my deathbed and, and go, oh, I did it. I did it. It's very liberating. That is a, that is a big deal. I mean, yeah. at your age, kind of thinking, I don't want to die now, but if I died now, I have achieved a lot of my dreams in my life. Did you always sing as a child? Was music always your thing? Singing? No. Were you like dancing in the mirror with a hairbrush? No. No, it was a very, very private relationship, weirdly, for me. It was like a relationship. It was me and my voice, yeah. Yes. And I. So in parts work, that would have its own identity. Yes, it would. It was my kind of friend, my release. No one could take it away from me. I could do it anywhere. I mean, that's the best thing ah. about being a singer. If you look at what, the, the, you know, the evolution and the use of the voice, of course, throughout centuries, you know, how people use their voices in song and music and protests and pain and joy and weddings, funerals. Celebration. Yeah, it's a core human response to life's, um, well, we don't have words, we sing maybe, an expression of being human that narrative or talk, talking doesn't do. It's very connecting. 
I, I think so. You know, along with movement, um, so primal, what well, taps into that very primal element, just making a noise. And so I always wanted to sing, always wanted to be a pop star, and then started doing a bit more here and there throughout university. And then found this talent competition, had a premonition that I would win it. You had a premonition that you were going to win Pop Idol? I had a premonition I was going to win a talent, if there was a talent competition for one singer, that I would win it. Yeah, very old. I remember watching it with my children. We loved that show. We watched it, all of us, me and my four kids, back in whatever it was, 2002. It, we watched it every week. It was incredibly exciting and incredibly excited when you won. It was so exciting. It was so new then as well. Um, and we had, a real, we had such a laugh. We really did have a laugh. And so you won it. And in that moment, your life completely changed. You had a record contract. Your song was the fastest selling song on the chart. So in one way, you won your dream. And then what happened? How was the internal calibration with that external stardom? Someone asked me actually that earlier, funny enough, because I was so prepared to be a pop star, when I became famous and won the show, those things were very sort of secondary because I was so prepared to be a pop star that I thought, well, yes, I suppose these are the kind of things that come along with it. I wanted to be known as a singer. I didn't, it wasn't about fame. And I was very focused on maintaining and growing my success. So I think that focus uh, helped me, really, because I never really got lost in it. And I also had really great friends. And I think because I'd been at university and I'd got a degree in politics, I'd lived a little bit of life, I think all that stood me in quite good stead. It was stressful. You know, now I look back, I mean, it seems like a different world. I mean, it really does seem like a different world. But I mean, you know, being followed by paparazzi and things like that was not fun and very scary. You know, it really, it really was horrible. And I can see why, you know, I think the latest thing in the news about Harry and Meghan being chased by you know, paparazzi. The, the problem is that that can bring a reaction because often it's dark, so flashes are very discombobulating. You don't see people's faces. Flashes are threatening, yeah. It's very threatening. I mean, they try and get into my house, try and, you know, end up in restaurants, end up in shops. You know, they were pretty monstrous. And I guess I was at the time when it That's was... horrendous. ...just at its just getting to its peak, and obviously we know the whole phone hacking thing and all that. Um, but I did have very good friends around me. I never found it exciting. I never loved it. I never wanted the attention. Um, you know, but at least I could see how silly the whole thing was. So you had some perspective. You could sort of stand back and you were mature enough with reliable enough good friends who loved you for you before the success who could kind of keep you grounded and I as you were talking I was thinking and your relationship with your voice like this part of you that gives you a sense of agency and power at, 
in a childhood that where you were often powerless and often, I think, under threat and traumatized, how has your relationship with your voice been since then? I mean, has it changed? Is it still your best companion, as it were? Yes, I think it probably is. You know, it's a, it's a lovely question. Thank you. My relationship with being a singer, I, I, I've always struggled with. Um, and I think that's because it's so innate to me, my voice and my writing, and that I really don't like the idea of it being judged. Um, and that makes me feel so vulnerable. And, and I think I'm exposed. at peace now. Yeah, very exposed. And I think I'm at peace now with the fact that I'm not that okay with it, if that makes sense. Well, it's a shitty business, the music business, isn't it? It's so shitty. It's so shitty and it's all about being cool and being relevant. And none of it plays well to, to my insecurities. And that, to be honest, I really don't think I would have as badly if I wasn't in pop music. So, I mean, I've managed to continue it and do it, and I, and I really enjoy doing the concerts. But I've noticed since I've been doing uh, a lot more in well-being and a lot more in acting that I feel a lot stronger and protected. And I think a lot of that is because I don't feel as exposed. That is so interesting, isn't it? Because... The sense I make of it and, and put me straight is that in many ways, your voice and your relationship with your voice is your secret weapon. It's your kind of power, superpower. But because it's so important to you, exposing it and putting it in the way of danger of the music industry, it can really shatter you because they will want to do things with your music or you or the product, whatever, however you describe it, that in a way estranges you from the very thing that gives you a sense of power. I think that's interesting, exactly. It's sort of what my voice does for me, and, and I still get as much joy. You know, I probably do at least half an hour a day of, of singing and songwriting in my little studio here. And I, yeah, I love it. No one can take that away. Is that like your safe place? It's one of them. Yeah, it is quite, it is, it's just really fun. You know, it's like having access to, well, your own instrument, really. What my voice has always done for me, I, I don't, it's so precious that I don't want people making comments. Or The thing is, it's not just about singing. That You know, pop music is, has never just been about a voice. If it was about a voice, it'd be different, but it's about how you look, what you're wearing, what you say, what sex you are. Performance. What, you know, yeah, what sexuality you are, performing, all these kind of things. But it's like putting on a show and that feels in some way inauthentic, whereas your voice is very authentic. Yeah, I don't mind the show thing, but I think a lot of the things around the edges can pull away at that authenticity. Whereas if I'm doing an acting job, I'm doing a play in July, I, I did it in Manchester and now it's come to London it's called A Song From Far Away. It's written by Simon Stevens. Um, he's, he's a very well-known playwright, and it's a monologue. It's just wonderful. And because it's not written by me, this was the great thing. When I was in rehearsals for it for Manchester, this was in February, the director said, 
do you want to see the set? You know, do you want to see uh, the set? So I said, no. I said, it's got nothing to do with me. The set design. It's so liberating. That's because you surrendered to some extent. Yeah. It's like, whoa, I can let you. I, I'm, I know my thing. I know what I'm good at. And whereas in pop, you know, and now this is part of the fun of pop, but, you know, I create my sets when I go on tour and things like that, the design and the lights and everything. So it's so liberating. I can just focus on pure performance. And if we bring it back to voice, as an actor, the voice that you're bringing a piece is so interesting because it does come back to voice. And I feel like the authenticity can't get chipped away at as much. Uh, and also I'm playing a different character, so I feel less vulnerable, you know, and it plays into my younger parts because it's like playing dress up, you know, when you're a kid and that's fun. Fun. I like playing with an audience. Really is. I, I, I did an, an event this morning and with an audience of women, like 200 women, and I bloody loved it. There's a thing where you feel the power of you in relation to them. Like they ask a question. For me, it was obviously about therapy. And you feel this transmission of goodwill between each other. You say something, it resonates with them. And it's just incredibly powerful. And often in my thinking about myself, I've kind of been ashamed of enjoying the attention or in, it, somehow, you know, you mustn't show off is what my childhood, you know, don't show off. And now it's like, no, I bloody love it. It's really fun. And seeing everybody afterwards is fun. And it's enlivening. And I think we're wired to be tribal and connect in groups. Yes. And I really relate to what you're saying about your thinking about yourself. And maybe there was a certain amount of shame about, I don't know if I've got your words correctly, but um, enjoying it. Yeah. And that can be linked to your childhood. I, I feel the same. I mean, I love now and really embrace the fact that I, I love the attention. I love the attention, but I love the exchange, as you say, and the interaction of energy. And, and I really relate to hearing what you said when people ask questions, because isn't that beautiful? And suddenly you feel the whole room change into this sort of safe, healing, mm. uh, accepting yes. forum, which is... Feels like love. Yeah, it do, Yeah, feels like love. And that we're in it together and life is tricky. That's it. I agree. And I think how great sometimes it takes us a while to get back to that place. We're not really set up very well for that in society, but it's great when we can get back to that place. But also, you know, you've had a lot of complexity of, you know, your breakdown and agoraphobia and dissociation and your brother dying and so many challenges. And I don't know if the word is fought them, but you face them in a way you've, you've allowed them to impact you and learned how to live with them rather than trying to kind of push them out. And then through that, what I'm understanding is that you're finding the joy in who you are, like acting, like using your voice. And I, I was wondering for people listening, what are the things that are translatable for them that you've learned for you? You can't rush healing. People want to get to that place. And I understand that. But it takes 
as long as it takes. And and for me, healing is, as we sort of touched on, you know, earlier on in the conversation, it's not sort of getting to a place where I've forgotten about certain stuff. For me, it was about refinding joy in a much healthier way. And that really does take as long as it takes. Uh, that's a key thing. I think one of the key th- lessons for me has been learning how to communicate with people that speaking my truth uh, and learning how to do it properly in a, in a good, you know, kind, strong way is probably one of the most liberating things. And we're not very good at that, humans. We also can feel terribly bad about ourselves if we think that maybe people might not like us for something. But I have no control over what my neighbour across the road thinks of me. And if I want to try and control that, that's me trying to control everyone. I'd say that those things have been really beneficial for me because it's really empowering. But you've got to look at why you don't like confronting things, why you don't like speaking up for yourself. You've got to really unpack that, and that can take a while. It's not just as simple as reading codependency no more or something and going right now i'm going to speak my truth you know you you... now i'm sorted (laughs) yeah now i'm sorted there's a lot of unpacking that goes with that and that takes time because also the the our brain and our the way we are as human beings is so habit formed there are so many rabbit runs that are so familiar particularly when they're horribly familiar it doesn't take just thinking to decide, okay, I'm not going to be codependent. I'm going to have boundaries and speak my truth. As you said, it's a big adaptation process. Change takes time, which is a message I totally reiterate and that it's complex unpacking it. When you talked about finding joy in a much more grounded way, can you kind of unpick that Mm. a bit what does that look like or feel like well I think I suppose if I think back to my 20s finding joy would be or even 30s at a much faster pace you know let's go out get drunk go dancing you know everything's quite quick uh, and everything's like little hits that I I thought was joy Uh, and, and I don't take away you know times of when I did go out and get really drunk. Really fun, but also young and fun and a bit wild. and Yeah, but I think I was also probably, along with just being young and, you know, all that, probably thinking that, oh, well, if I had a flash car or the right clothes or... And I, by the way, I can still fall into this thinking. I am not, you know, some Zen master. <laughs> not at all. But, you know... <laughs> None of us are. No, none of us are. If I just have that thing, you know, or this thing, they're all very temporary and and pretty material. Um, So I guess when I think of joy, it's probably coming more from an inward place now and and probably a place of self-acceptance and self-love. And that takes work. The self-acceptance and the love then opens you to a much bigger, broader capacity for deep connection. 
because those other things, the speed of it, the heightened state of it, the lack of soberness of it is really fun. And thank God you did it because you would want to have done. Mm. But now what I'm understanding is that to have a real sense of connection, you have to slow down, dare to open and release, and then you can have a proper connection with someone. And then that feels like joy. I mean, I feel our conversation has been, although I've never met you, you've never met me. It's felt a deep, not a, I don't know what you'd say deep, but it's felt a very honest connection. I've really loved it. I felt like I've, like we've moved a step closer to mm. each other from when we started mm. 45 minutes ago. Like, I feel like I have a sense of who you are internally. For me, that's that meets my needs for connection and feels like a really joyous thing. I mean, I completely relate to that because I have the same thing. I to have conversations which are to me open and honest, sharing about one's inner world, past history, struggles, thoughts is really true connection and that and meaningful, meaningful and feels safe feels validating and really is what life's about. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, that is a wonderful place to end. And before we end, do you want to tell people about your book and your podcast and your play? Oh, gosh, yeah. Play's really fun. It's it's a monologue called A Song From Far Away. And I, I think it's at the Hampstead Theatre um, end of June throughout July. It's heavy, but also very funny. And The Wellbeing Lab is, is my podcast, which I love. I love it. I think it's great. Thank you. I like talking to experts in their field, so, and I learn a lot about stuff. Thank you, Will, so much. That was such a lovely conversation. I really, really appreciate it, and thank you for giving me your time, but also for your openness and wisdom and honesty. I, thank you so much. Thank you. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Sophie and Emily. We are going to talk about the brilliant kind of multi-talented musician and actor, author and podcaster, Will Young. and. I loved this conversation with him and I, I wondered what came up for you too. I really loved this conversation too. And I loved the bit where you talked about remembering watching him on Pop Idol. If it was Pop Idol. <laughs> um, do you remember that? I do I really do. remember that. Because it was also like the first wave it was. of those sort of music reality TV things. And we were probably sort of prime age for them because I think sort of around his age, actually, probably around mm. that. It was Saturday nights, right? We sat around with kind of crisps and Coca-Cola mm. watching Pop Idol. Mm, it's riveting. And we were so thrilled. But I think lots of people listening might well remember it too. I mean, it was a very memorable show because we'd never seen anything like it. I love that he's 
become such an advocate for mental health and talking about things that are hard to talk about. And I was really interested in his experience of dissociation. Um, and I think he used some terms that maybe not everyone is sort of familiar with, but because he's sort of in that world, he used them very kind of freely. So I don't know if it was sort of helpful to talk a bit about dissociation because, I mean, dissociation is sort of, you know, if your brain is a computer, it would kind of be system overload. Like you can't cope with what's going on around you. So it kind of shuts down in some parts and makes you feel disconnected from reality. But I think what lots of people don't realize is there's different ways of experiencing dissociation. And Will mentioned a couple of them. And one of them is depersonalization. So that's feeling outside of your own body, um, almost like a ghost but you kind of can see yourself or really disconnected from your body or from your, from your emotions. Um, the other one that he used is so the realization. So scary. Yeah. I think all of them are very scary actually. And then derealization is sort of being outside of the world. So that the world kind of seems sort of quite kind of foggy or really detached or far away. Um, I've actually had some clients who, it's like their eyes don't work properly. So the world feels kind of a bit wobbly all the time, like, and you know, they've been to the opticians and said, look, I don't know what's going on because I feel kind of almost dizzy all the time. Like the world just doesn't feel there. And, you know, they have a lot of eye examinations and lots of sort of physical tests and there's nothing physical wrong. That's derealization. Um, and then there are other forms of dissociation too. So there's dissociative amnesia, and that's where you just have big blanks in your memory, these things that have happened to you and you have no memory of those events in your life. Um, and another one is um, sort of identity alteration. It used to be called multiple personality disorder. So, oh, and, can, and it's now, yeah, so it's now being categorized as a form of dissociation. But I think the understanding of it is not that you have multiple personalities, you're actually one person, but you have multiple identities within one person. Within those different identities, sometimes you might speak with a different voice, you might have different sort of physical characteristics when you're embodying those different identities. And then the final one is identity confusion, which is when you find it very hard to really know what you think or feel or your opinions on anything and you're operating in this gray zone of not really being quite sure of who you are. And so all of those are different forms of dissociation. If people want to know more that Carolyn Spring has a good website with lots of accessible and affordable trainings for both people who are therapists, but also people who are just ordinary and want to learn more. So if any of those things resonate, I would recommend that. We can add that on the show notes. The Mind website is very good too, because it is really terrifying um, of kind of what to do if that happens to you. So I think visualizations, I know we've talked about grounding before, journaling, very cold water, all those sorts of things. I think the Mind um, website has a lot of um, tips of how to help. If, as you talked about, um, your brain is on overload, doing anything in the way like Will does, like he talks about getting his brain back online and regulating, doing anything that winds your system down that is a sort of de-escalator, which would be cold water or swimming. It's often people who've experienced trauma, isn't it? But often early trauma, like from a child. I don't think it's necessarily from when you're a child, but I, I think it's often trauma. So like 
I think, you know, depersonalization that often happens if you're sexually assaulted or something, you know, something like that, where you feel like you're sort of floating above your own body. Mm. It's essentially, isn't it? It's a, it's a coping strategy for the experience of the time where it's safer not to be present with our experience. What's hard when you've moved beyond the traumatic experiences is, is that can become a, a sort of habitual way of coping with overwhelm or when those memories or those experience get re-evoked. And so it's finding other ways to support yourself to sort of widen your ability to be with the experiences or the sensations that might be being triggered that set off the sort of dissociation experiences. And so if I think you've talked a lot before about grounding, so like reminding yourself where you are, putting your feet on the ground, naming the things around you, using all your different senses to remind you that you're in the here and now. Like Will used um, scent, didn't he? Smells, he found very grounding. But I think the other thing that is sort of generalizable is music and his relationship with his voice, which sounds like an amazing relationship, but also like a version of having another sibling, like having another twin, a different part of him. I think it sounds really like an amazing thing and also like a gift, you know, like most people don't have anything like that in their lives. I certainly don't have anything like that, that I feel like it's a part of me, but also something in its own right, in a way. I think what he has is obviously this sort of drive and kind of gift in his singing. But I think singing for everybody is a really beneficial thing. And we're conditioned from so young to not sing if you're not like good in inverted commas at singing. I remember in my primary school, I think I was in like year five and we were performing at this school and our singing teacher, we were all standing in line and she walked down the line listening to everybody as they were singing. And we got to the end of the song and she pointed at me and then two other people in my year. And she was like, you don't sing. (laughs) You just mouth the words to the song. And no, I didn't think that I was particularly good at singing. And actually, I don't think I was sort of reminded hugely, but I do think that it's sort of research has shown that singing is hugely beneficial in terms of your dopamine, it helps your immunity, all these different things. And it reduces anxiety and improves your mood, even for when you're having an operation or doing anything stressful. Singing really helps calm your system. Yeah, but I think lots of people are like me and have quite a lot of shame around singing because we're told from very young that we can't sing. But it's such a fun thing to do. And I just wish that everyone was just encouraged to sing regardless of whether you can sing in tune or not. I was banned from singing at school. (laughs) Two generations of them. I was told to mouth, not to sing. And I I have felt self-conscious singing ever bloody sense and it's really bloody annoying i mean not a big thing but it's taken a lot of pleasure from something that is so pleasurable i'm part of a the village choir that i'm and i'm i have a desperately mediocre voice um <laughs> and we perform you probably don't but I, I do but that's okay and um that's not the point which is what's nice about yeah. community choirs isn't it is it isn't about a professional choir and it is just a fun way to be with people it's a nice way to meet people has a nice rhythm to it and also i think music will also talked about beats certain beats and rhythms 
there's quite a lot of research in trauma that shows that dr- like drumming and beats and music are really powerful treatments for trauma. And I also always remember that Oliver Sacks said the two most powerful medicines he had other than drugs were nature and music. And that the people oh, nice. that he worked with with very serious neurological diseases, if he played the music or he took them outside, they could suddenly do things that you wouldn't have dreamed they were capable of doing, like suddenly being able to tie their shoelaces or climb up onto a rock, things that, that most of the time they're not capable of doing. And it's certainly true of my own experience of when I listen to music, a certain sort of connectivity of those experiences, activation that, that to shift things. Like I often listen to music to help move my feelings. We all do it instinctively, don't we? Put on sad tunes just for catharsis or like mm. fun tunes to get in the mood. And I love to dance, as both of you know very much. Um, You're a great dancer. And- You're both great dancers. I love movement and music and I love for us, and I would highly recommend it for anyone, the way we just put on music and dance in the kitchen when we're having tea. And mm-hmm. it's like 10 minutes or and dance with the children. And I think... From when you were small when we did it and I doing it with your children it is one of the sweetest, joyous things that we do. And it's shedding those things of ha- of being good, isn't it? It's like your good voice or your good moves or like yeah. that allow you to really enjoy that. Because as soon as you feel really horribly self-conscious, it's very hard to actually just take pleasure in it. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole in the singing. I know that there's a lot of research out there about health benefits. And what I found fascinating, because it's not only sort of the bits that I would assume, which is kind of it alters the neurotransmitters and you get like a dopamine rush, but it actually improves your immunity. It increases your immunoglobin, your immunoglobin A, which helps you fight disease. But also what was interesting, they've done a lot of research on it. And there's like a certain time that you have to sing for in order to receive the benefits. So it's between five and 14 minutes. And it's kind of your benefits are amplified if you're also doing it like you so communally. That's amazing. I mean, that's why I love the Gareth Malone choir thing. And I do this um, monthly call with people who breathe to do with my um, Grief Works app. And one of the things I recommend for people who feel so isolated and lonely is to find their local choir. Because of all the things you say, that thing of singing the same song from the same sheet, being together, it's lots of different people from different walks of life. And I think it's a bit like when you all laugh together. I think there's this sense of intimacy and connection of singing together, with it, which is incredibly powerful and healing. You know, in mirror neurons, when you mirror the behavior of someone else, this feels to me like there's something very powerful about doing something in sync with someone else, like beating in someone else, singing in rhythm with someone else, moving in with someone else. I think, you know, probably in training, you did things like this where you had to like mirror the behavior of other people. You know, they would put their hand up, you put your hand up. And it's actually a very surprisingly emotional experience to be in sync with someone physically. Because I also think it's it's a primal thing, right? It's mm. like what you do to attune to your baby, right? You smile at your baby, your baby smiles back at you. So there's something very non-verbal about it, that you're just kind yeah. of attuning to each other. The other thing I was, wanted to ask what you both thought about it, because I was left thinking about it, even though it was a small part of the conversation. What is the thing underneath asking or wanting to have attention paid to you that we think is not okay? Like what is so not okay about wanting or enjoying attention? I think it is partly a cultural thing. So I think there's something very 
English or British about not wanting attention. Like I lived in the US for nearly eight years and there it's kind of okay to say that you've done really well. And actually, if you're self-deprecating, people are like, oh, no, don't worry. Like they don't get that you're trying to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it is partly that. But I also think, you know, I think we should be better about allowing ourselves to like attention. Well, the thing I was thinking about it was that I wish that maybe we could perceive it as in that moment being in a role. Like right. being a like when you were talking, Mum and Will, both of you really like relating on the level of like how joyous it can be, facilitating an experience essentially for yourself and for other people, and and loving the exchange and loving being at the receiving end of the energy and giving back the energy, and that in that moment you're sort of in a role of a facilitator of connection and of experience. It's not that you are special; it's that you're using your abilities or, or talents to facilitate an experience for everyone. Which then you get to take off and walk away and be yourself. And it's only when you over-identify with the idea of that being who you are as a person or that somehow you are more valuable or important because you facilitate those experiences that things can get really problematic, both for you, but also for other people's experience of you when it becomes about becoming superior or more important rather than about this is something that I do really well, really love, and I step into that role and I do it, and then I step out of that role and I'm, I'm me. What do you think, Mum? As someone who has much more experience of this than we do. <laughs> I, I really like the way that you've defined it that, it, that we are playing a part or we're in a role, and it's not playing, it feels authentic at the time, but it's not all of you. And then you come back with your humility and things that you're rubbish at or how annoying I am. Or if, when you swallow whole your public persona, then that is problematic for you and everybody around you. I was brought up that, you know, you mustn't show off. And I wondered, did I bring you up not to get attention that you mustn't show off? I didn't know when I thought about it. No, I mean, I I don't think so. It's definitely not part of what I've ever really thought about. I remember doing quite a lot of performances to you. Like I remember doing Red Riding Hood and like playing multiple parts myself. Like I feel like that was <laughs> quite encouraged. <laughs> I have no memory of being told not to show off. If anything, it, it's the sort of thing that I think maybe gets picked up more culturally, you know, or in schools or I don't think it was a big part of our, our experience. Mm. I really want to thank Will Young for being so open. You know, I'd never met him. He'd never met me. And I felt like we really went to places which were very personal and powerful. So I feel really appreciative of that. If you think this is a a conversation that others would enjoy too, do please share it and rate and subscribe to the podcast and listen to us next week. Thanks very much.